This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you their reporting and the stories behind the coverage as the Montana State Legislature meets in an unprecedented session. So, Tom, through this session so far, you've been noticing a trend in some of the bills you've covered, and that's this dynamic between the legislature and the power they think they should have in fish and game management compared to the state's Fish and Wildlife Commission, which also has a role to play in these decisions. So where has this cropped up so far, and what's the debate sounded like? Sure, Tom. So... uh I, th- I don't think this is anything new necessarily, but um, we have seen this play out in a lot of bills this session that um, the legislature is um, considering um, season settings and um, types of weapons that can be used. Um, and that's um, something that um, the Montana Fish and Wildlife Commission has authority to do. Um, that commission meets every couple of years or they meet continually, but every couple of years they, they do what's called season setting. And and that's a pretty rigorous process. Um, um, so any hunter that's, um, you know, sort of followed the process or, or, or commented, that's what you're commenting on typically is, Hey, uh, they want to add some elk tags here. They want to add, um, you know, subtract some deer tags over there. Um, what do you think about that? So, um, we've seen this crop up in bills, um, relating to, um, the wolf management, um, from um, Senator Paul Field, they're from Thompson Falls. That's the snaring bill and the uh, the expansion of the wolf season. Um, we've also seen it in the um, the development of the muzzleloader heritage hunt, which is uh, Representative Caleb Hinkle, and uh, the crossbow bill um, for which would allow um, hunters with disabilities to hunt with a crossbow during archery season. And that's from uh, Senator Brad Molnar from Laurel. So what is uh, the concern about the way the legislature is uh, bringing up these bills in relation to, you know, the authority of the Fish and Game Commission? Sure, Tom. So the Fish and Wildlife Commission, um, what what the criticism is, that the, is that the commission already has the authority to do everything that's already in these bills. Um, and the, the other part of that criticism is that um, they are in a better position to take up these issues because they're a lot of them incredibly controversial, um, very complex. And um, they meet, and this is all they do um, all the time. They meet, you know, basically once a month and talk about wildlife and fish regulations and issues. So the legislature only meets 90 days every two years. Um, So I think um, this has been brought up a lot um, in the, in the opposition to the bills. Um, I think, um, one one uh, lawmaker that made a pretty major case for it was uh, Senator Pat Flowers from Belgrade. Um, he was speaking um, in opposition to the crossbow bill on the Senate floor this week. This bill was proposed in, in 2019, and, and I would acknowledge the distinctions that the good senator from Billings pointed out. But at that time, I argued and I still argue that we have a process with our Fish, Wildlife and Parks Commission and that process occurs every two years and it's called season setting. 
And when that occurs, we hold, or the department holds, 30 to 40 meetings across the state, and in some cases gets hundreds of sportsmen and women show up for these, weigh in on proposed season changes. This has not been subjected to that process. I'm not sure why, but it hasn't. And I can only assume that maybe it wouldn't pass muster, and so it's better to come here and go around that process and try and have it put into law rather than going through the rigorous public involvement that our normal season setting goes through. Um, so what, what Flowers is saying here is that um, we already have a process in place to consider these bills um, and that the legislature is not the best venue um, to vet some of these really, really tough issues. Um, but then you see um, the pushback on it. Um, especially with the wolf bills. Uh, what they're saying is that the commission has not been responsive to the, uh, to the needs of hunters um, specifically when it comes to um, uh, the dynamics between wolves and elk um, hunters in Northwest and Western Montana um, have spoken out and said um, in some cases that they want to see wolf numbers reduced um, that came to the commission and the commission voted that down or, or didn't adopt um, some of the recommendations that came forward. Um, so you so you so you, so you do see other lawmakers that say, well, um, we're going to push the commission um, in the direction that we want them to go. Can you um, explain to people where the balance of power is in government between the legislative branch and uh, the Fish and Wildlife Commission? Is the Fish and Wildlife Commission a part of the executive branch? So who who has a do they have authority over each other, or how does that work? Sure. So the Fish and Wildlife Commission is the oversight board for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Um, any major decisions that that agency makes, um, you know, whether it be an animal transplant, um, setting a fishing season, um, trapping regulations, um, all that has to be proposed by the agency and then approved or modified and vote or voted down by the commission. Um, the commissioners are appointed by the governor. They serve staggered terms. So uh, right now we have um, one commissioner um, that is set to continue from Governor Steve Bullock. Um, there's another commissioner, Andrew McKeon, that was appointed as an interim um, commissioner. And then um, Greg Gianforte, the current governor, is, is able to uh, appoint commissioners all, as well, three other ones. Um, there's also a bill out there that's kind of tangential to uh, add a couple commissioners, um, but that has not passed yet. Um, so you asked about the dynamic between the two. Well, the legislature can pass laws as it sees fit. Um, so they absolutely have the authority to pass any of these laws and restrict um, the Fish and Wildlife Commission um, in any way. It, it, the lawmakers want to vote that through if it gets a governor's signature. Um, but they can also delegate power to the Fish and Wildlife Commission to... Um, really, and that's why this commission exists um, to to take up these issues of of you know often complex and controversial um, subjects. Do we have any idea what the current commission thinks about uh, the legislature kind of trying to usurp their um, regulating ability? You know, um, for this story, I, th I think. Uh, because the current commissioners are serving and some of them are still subject to um, confirmation. Um, I, I decided to talk to um, Shane Colton, who is most recently 
um, the chair of the commission um, appointed by Governor Bullock and just asked him about, you know, what what that sort of dynamic is like. And he said, yeah, you know, there is a constant tension um, between the legislature and the commission. Um, legislators, if they don't like what the commission is doing, will tell them, well, we're going to do it for you. Um, I, that a big place that that has played up historically has been elk management, um, specifically shoulder seasons um, in the last few years. And that's something Colton really touched on a lot was that um, they felt pressure um, to push forward um, on shoulder seasons, um, keeping in mind that if um, they pushed back against that, that the legislature could uh, could then come in and and really change things for them. How does the um, dynamics of having a Republican governor now um, and a Republican-controlled legislature, which is different than what it has been, how does that change the debate over um, this this process that the legislature is doing? Um, well, I think that's the big uh, big wild card here um, and, and the big unknown. Um, you know. Certainly, um, Governor Gianforte has been critical of fish, wildlife, and parks um, in the past and their relationship to landowners um, specifically. Um, how that will play out in, in his decisions as far as what bills he, he chooses to sign or veto, um, we don't know. But I, I think there were bills in the past that we could see going through the process that we were pretty confident once they hit the, the desk of Governor Bullock were going to be vetoed. Um, but we certainly um, Governor Gianforte is a, is a hunter and and interested in these topics. So I think um, it's safe to say that he's he he comes from a place of knowledge when it comes to what he's gonna gonna decide to do here. So we'll have to just stay tuned and keep watching um, when these bills actually hit the governor's office um, to see how it actually ends up impacting um, hunters and anglers across the state. Um, I- yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And, and I think the other thing, too, is that th- these are, by and large, not very bipartisan bills. Um, you are seeing a few Republicans um, sort of coming coming to the same criticism that, you know, th- th- we're not the best venue to be doing this. But then, you know, there's some Democrats voting for this, voting for the bills, too. So um, it, it, it really is going to probably come down to what the governor decides to do. So the legislature is a political body. Uh, the members are elected by their constituents um, for various interests and various reasons um, why their constituents elected them. But the appointment process to um, the Fish and Wildlife Commission um, is a different process. And these people probably inherently come from different backgrounds. Um, and how is the people who sit on the commission... Um, their backgrounds different than legislatures. Is the commission uh, built up of biologists, of outfitters? How how is the commission made up? And how is that different from legislators who are elected? Sure, Tom. So currently, um, the only requirement of the commission is that one member represent represent landowners and livestock interests, basically. Um, Other than that, there's really not um, any set criteria for who can serve on it and who can't it's um, all basically just geographic. Um, so right now there's five districts um, under another bill from, from Senator or from representative fielder though, that would change to um, seven members, um, which re- represent the seven administrative regions, um, 
which that bill is actually getting quite a bit of support and, and seems to be moving along um, pretty judiciously. So, um, um, you know, there's people who are interested in natural resources, whether that be, um, you know, wildlife or fish ecology. Um, there's been outfitters certainly on there in the past. Um, certainly they tend to be um, people that hunt um, fish, that kind of stuff that, that do serve on this commission. All right. Uh, definitely, definitely a, a dynamic worth watching for. It sounds like there's bills um, that could change the way we hunt. And there could, there sounds like there's at least one bill that could change the way the commission operates. Um, Seaborn, uh, you have a story this week um, that isn't about the legislature, uh, but it's pretty important to all the transition we've seen in state government in Helena um, since the beginning of this year. You found a court case where the Montana Highway Patrol lost a video that was a part of a crash that involved a trooper. And it turns out that a person who played a key role in mishandling that evidence is the same man who was just picked by the state's new Republican Attorney General Austin Knutson to run the agency. Um, who is that? That's Steve Lavin, who in December was appointed to the top post of that Montana Highway Patrol. He's a 28-year veteran of the department, and before he was named chief of the Highway Patrol, he was a major, so that's uh, third in the chain of command for the agency. He also served four terms in the state House of Representatives uh, as a Republican who worked on legislation like the state's 24-7 sobriety program and uh, a law that allows residents to harvest roadkill. Okay, now tell us about the case. So back in December, a judge sanctioned uh, the MHP for mishandling the dash cam video that captured this crash back in 2017. The driver is now suing the highway patrol for damages there. Um, the agency's policy is to hold this kind of video for five years, but the agency first claimed that the file was corrupted and, and MHP no longer had the video. But we know from a deposition in court filings that the agency instead lost the video kind of um, three separate times. So first, uh, the computer that held the actual file was removed from an office and then just not recovered, like they lost that computer. And then they also said the file wasn't tagged properly, so it wasn't saved in the agency's server. And then uh, kind of the third layer of this, the only hard copy of the video that's described in any court documents uh, is a DVD that went to Laven's office. Um, so Laven according to these court filings, watch the video, and then no one else ever saw that DVD again. So when I asked the Montana Department of Justice if um, the new attorney general, uh, that's former Republican Representative Austin Knutson, knew of the knew of Lavin's part in mishandling this evidence, the agency wouldn't answer that question, only saying that they don't comment on pending litigation. Um, it's worth noting here that Lavin himself is not a defendant in this case, um, only the Montana Highway Patrol. Okay, so now tell us about the crash uh, that spurred this whole thing. So this was back in August of 2017. Uh, Trooper Michael Howell had pulled someone over near Miles City, and he was leaving that traffic stop when he um, pulled a U-turn and didn't see a pickup coming down the highway towards him. That driver is Mitchell Burgess. He is um, an associate principal in Gillette, Wyoming, and he was going about 70 miles an hour when he had to drive off the road to avoid hitting the trooper. Uh, the injuries described in the court documents um, are, you know, some serious issues with the discs in his back, and uh, he reported having a concussion. 
he eventually sued the agency in 2019. So that's within that five-year window um, in the agency's policy. So because of this lawsuit um, and the subsequent judge ruling over the mishandling of the evidence, has MHP changed any of its policies and handling videos to make sure something like this doesn't happen again? So we don't know much um, about, you know, if any changes have been made since this uh, judge Kathy Seeley issued that sanction back in December. But in a July 2020 deposition that I had mentioned, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Hildenstab said uh, no policies had changed as, as a result of this video being lost. He said the procedures um, seem solid and, and that this incident kind of seemed like an outlier. So, Seaborn, uh, does stuff like this happen often? You know, there are a few examples I found of law enforcement claiming to have lost video evidence when it would have cast the agency in a bad light um, in a civil trial or some other action where um, law enforcement is sort of on the defense. There are cases in Great Falls and Missoula, and the videos that were lost typically showed um, police or probation officers getting physical with someone who, who isn't actually posing a threat. Um, there's one case in uh, Great Falls that's still ongoing uh, where a probation officer, according to this lawsuit, had um, tackled this woman who's standing nearby um, an arrest and actually broke her arm. That woman was uh, the mother of of the probationer who probation parole was there for. Um, she had driven her son to the area to turn himself in and an officer who was late to the, um, to the scene tackled her and allegedly broke her arm. So while... MHP said that they had no other examples of um, video going missing like this. It, it has happened at other agencies. So how did you come upon the case? Um, tell us a little bit about your process when you're looking for things like this happening in our courts. So this came to me uh, by way of a tip. Um, certainly the, the fact that this case had been sitting in district court since 2019 uh, and hadn't been reported on, um, you know, just points to the fact that it's it's so important for for local journalists to um, to sit on the courts and to and to look through um, case files for uh, not just law enforcement but um, any state agency or any organization that wields power uh, certainly is 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 held accountable in the courts if they are held accountable for um, misconduct and so. Um, after, after finding out about this, um, sanction back in December, uh, I just sat down at district court where, um, you know, public records are free to look through on a computer, uh, and then, um, sort of file by file going through the case and, and sort of unwinding, um, the, all the, um, you know, twists and turns where we, where, where I found this deposition was certainly the most helpful, um, in kind of laying out in clear terms, uh, how the agency claimed to have lost this evidence if the if the agency isn't going to comment for us um, and for our story so we can so we can bring their um, position to the to the readers then um, court filings like this uh, always talk when they're public and so um, that's I think that's probably one of the more important functions of, of our job as journalists thanks Seaborn. Uh Sam this week you covered a committee that gave us an early indication uh, of one of the biggest deals brokered in the 2019 session, uh, an agreement about using bonding to pay for some major infrastructure projects around the state. Uh, it appears at this point to be holding up. 
what does the infrastructure package look like so far? Yeah, so at this point, I mean, it's it's worth noting there's a long way to go. Um, it's just on its way out of a subcommittee, and then it'll go to House Appropriations, which um, is likely to probably make some more wholesale changes to it. At this point, though, uh, we've got about $570 million um, as a total infrastructure package, and uh, $102 million of that is from bonding. Um, overall, I mean, it's been it's been pretty muted. Um, unlike previous sessions, you know, there haven't been a whole lot of sticking points so far. And, uh, you know, there haven't been a lot of major disagreements, although I think some of the larger projects in there will probably get a closer look once it goes to the full House of Probes Committee. Uh, so what was the battle? Why did bonding always hang up? Um, yeah, so in past sessions, um, there were kind of two main sticking points um, or areas that Republicans and Democrats largely disagreed. One was, um, you know, just kind of where a lot of these projects were located. Obviously, Republicans tend to be from more rural districts and um, and Democrats from more urban districts. And it was a lot of these kind of big ticket items like the Montana Heritage Center in Helena that um, were really given a lot of Republicans heartburn. So when they were looking at the, and then the other side of that is, um, you know, how much, how much of this are you going to finance with cash, um, you know, from state and other sources and how much is going to be paid for with bonding. Um, and Democrats have had argued for a number of sessions that uh, bonding is really the way to go right now to kind of leverage some of those historically low interest rates that we've had. Um, while Republicans, um, you know, typically are, are a lot more reticent to, to take on additional state debt. Um, so what happened last year was um, there were a couple of bills that kind of hammered out um, some parameters for how to move forward with a mix of cash and bonding that both sides would find palatable. Um, and that did successfully pass last year. That was kind of the uh, the trial year for it. And, um, and they managed... <clears throat> Sorry, that was kind of the trial year for it, and they managed to uh, to pass um, some pretty major projects, including uh, getting that kind of longtime priority by the Democrats, the Heritage Center, um, kind of off the ground. So there's not just one infrastructure bill, right? Uh, this is a fairly complex process. Can you give us just a high level view of what yeah? All is so um, right now, there's there's actually nine different bills that the infrastructure uh, budget panel has been looking at, um, and most of them are pretty, um, you know, pretty non-controversial stuff. Um, you know, like uh, you know, one example is um, about fifty-eight million dollars for um, the long-range IT program, which is a lot of um, kind of like uh, IT security uh, investments that both sides pretty well agree the state needs to make. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's other programs like the Treasure State Endowment pro Program, which provides funds to mostly uh, smaller communities uh, that need work done on, um, you know, water, wastewater and uh, stormwater infrastructure. Um, so where it gets a little bit complicated is, um, you know, especially when you're looking at the bonding bill, House Bill 14, um, you know, that contains some projects that are, you um, you know, listed in a lower priority than projects that appear in a different bill. And so kind of depending on what sort of horse trading goes on later in the session and, um, you know, just kind of how some of these debates go, um, it's possible you could have a scenario where 
you know, a bill that contains higher priority projects actually fails and then the lower priority projects are passed. So, Sam, where is the Heritage Center? So the Heritage Center project is uh, that's one of the kind of big ticket items this year as well. Um, They've got currently um, in the bill, they've got 37 million appropriated for that, although um, uh, Gianforte's budget office has actually said that they're going to need another four million dollars, most likely due to COVID related cost overruns. Um, and there was some disagreement on the on the subcommittee as far as whether that's sufficient to cover it. Um, so that's probably one that we'll see revisited during the uh, House Appropriations Committee um, and a couple other big ticket projects that might be getting a closer look are, um, you know, the UM Forestry Lab. There's 25 million in bonds for that right now. Um, there is a uh, an MSU Ag and Research Center and Wool Lab that's getting 11 million. Um, when I talked to uh, kind of one of the more active Democrats on the committee, uh, Representative Jim Hamilton. I mean, he he seemed to think that those were probably the most at risk just because, um, you know, those university projects tend to be a little less savory for some of the Republicans. But, um, but you know, he felt they had a good chance of, of staying in there relatively untouched, um, you know, just given that, you know, we're looking at um, agriculture and forestry, which obviously, you know, impacts a lot of people in the state kind of regardless of where their district is. Well, that's another episode of Big Sky Lead. Uh, If you want to keep hearing this, make sure and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tom.